Good morning, everyone. It's good to have you here this morning. We'll celebrate uh, the 4th of July this coming week, our country's 241st birthday. And uh, woo-woo, there we go. Um, and uh, as I share with you last week, we're all kind of familiar. Oh, I, I saw something on the television, I think it was this morning, where this guy went on the beach and was asking a lot of uh, college students and young people if they, uh, if they knew what uh, we celebrated on July 4th. And uh, the, the biggest conclusion was that's when Columbus discovered America. And, <laughs> and uh, I, uh, that's when everybody goes to a baseball game and eats hot dogs. Uh, anyway. Um, well, we're, we're, maybe you're not familiar with the, the, the uh, Declaration of Independence, but this, this one phrase it seems that we are very familiar with, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and we're endowed um, by their, our Creator with certain uneligible rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, most countries, this whole idea of life and liberty come very strong. That's part of the fabric of the country. But this pursuit of happiness is something that sets America apart. It seems that our founding fathers wanted us to know that this was a right uh, to pursue. Happiness was a right that could not be taken away or denied. But as I shared with you last week, um, and the 2017 World Happiness Report, and there is such a thing, uh, America for the last uh, several years has been in steady decline on the happiness meter, um, which has left, left us in 2017 as ranking 14th uh, in the world as the happiest nation. It seems that as American, as, as a whole, we enjoy a very high standard of living, but we're not necessarily all that happy. Uh, hands will be thrilled to know that Denmark is the most happiest country in the world. Woohoo! There you go. Two woohoos, and we're not even five minutes into the sermon. So some people say, well, why aren't we happy? Well, maybe we're seeking happiness in all the wrong places. Our clothes, our clothes aren't fashionable enough. Our cars aren't fancy enough. Our houses aren't elaborate enough. Our jobs aren't rewarding enough. Our relationships aren't fulfilling enough. And therefore, we're just not happy. And um, we're all happy when we had that new car smell. But once the new car smell fades away then it's time for us to buy a new car because God knows we want to be happy. Now, others will say that the reason why we're not very happy is because people are on this roller coaster, on this cycle of emotions, where if everything's going good in their life, they're happy, but once something bad happens, they are unhappy. So it all depends upon the experience of your, well, what you're going through at that particular time. Seems that some people spend endless energy climbing their way up the happiness scale only to plummet into despair when something bad happens in their life. But as, we shared, as I shared with you last week, that wasn't the case with the Apostle Paul. He's actually sitting in a prison cell... Um, for preaching the gospel, and he wrote to the Philippian church, he actually uses the word joy or happiness over 19 times in that short four-chapter epistle. And it seems that the apostle is challenging them. Now, I'm going to see how good you do this week when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, Rejoice. Very good. Man, the, first, the first service totally blew it, all right? So... The Holy Spirit seemed to enable the Apostle Paul to shift his focus from exiting prison 
to exalting Christ. And I think if we're really going to pursue happiness, that's really what it takes. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts to, uh, to shift our attentions from exiting the situation of unhappiness that we're facing and really focus our attention on exalting Christ. It seems that the Holy Spirit had worked in the Apostle Paul's heart in such a way that he's able to shift his focus from self and his own situation to serving Christ and serving the people of Christ. And we focused in on this Christ-centered philosophy that the Apostle mentions in chapter 1 and verse 21 when he writes these words, As to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is a Christ-centered philosophy which enabled the Apostle Paul to truly seek happiness while he was incarcerated. Probably no verse summarizes Paul's joy, his contentment, his overall purpose in life. This was his ruling passion. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This was Paul's pursuit of happiness regardless of the circumstances that surrounded him. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, last week, we focused on the first part of this verse, as for me, to live is Christ. And I concluded last week's sermon in giving you the simple wheel illustration where we say that this circle basically represents your life. And, but we see that what Paul is saying is that Christ has to be the center of your life. Christ is the center. And we have our finances, we have our family, we have relationships, we have our career, we have our education. We have all different things going on, but it all stems out of our relationship with Christ. As for me, to live is Christ. And as I challenged you last week, we can have one of these areas that kind of gets out of whack in the sense that we're really not glorifying or really not glorifying Christ or exalting Christ in our finances or maybe in our relationships or this type of thing. And what happens is the wheel starts to wobble. The wheel starts to wobble. But God gives us occasions like coming to worship to be able to get our focus back on exalting Christ in every area, every facet of our life. Well, now, this morning, we're going to be looking at our focus on the second part of this verse, which is to die is gain. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been in a church service when the preacher preached on death, but that's what's going to happen this morning. All right. Uh, It seems that, as I shared with you last week, that... um, It's only when we have times where we go to a memorial service or a funeral service that we are really confronted um, with the whole idea of death. And maybe that's not a good thing. Maybe we should be thinking about it um, more than just on those occasions. So uh, I'm not trying to be morbid or trying to freak you out or anything. But this morning we're going to be talking about the truth that to die is gain. Now we don't usually associate death with a gain. We, we will say to one another, I'm sorry for your loss, but we don't truly associate death with happiness. We usually associate death with sadness. We say to the family of the deceased, well, we know he or she is in a better place, but the question has to come down, do we really believe that? 
do we really believe to die is gain? It seems that the Holy Spirit had worked in Paul's heart and so, soul so deeply that if his imprisonment led to his execution, that he would be happy to die. To die for him was a gain. Now, we have to admit that this type of thinking is totally counter-worldly. I mean, you're not going to go to the publics and somebody's going to say, uh, to die is gain. This type of mindset is outside of our natural scope of understanding. This, this, this phrase, to die is gain, is kind of similar to the Apostle James when he wrote, uh, Count it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. <laughs> Count it all joy when I go through a trial. That's totally, totally counter, counterworldly. That's, we don't associate joy with trials. And as I shared with you a few months ago, I believe that the Apostle James, when he writes, consider it all joy, is no way suggesting that trials are enjoyable. But rather, he, he's not suggesting that we would disguise our pain and our suffering with some sort of mask of joy and happiness and kind of like just be a fake. But I believe that he's saying that when trials come, we should really seek the Lord for a mindset that we have, that God will make a way where there seems to be no way. Amen? Amen. I believe that, we, that what the apostle is saying is that we must have a mindset that God will give us a faith to endure, as well the wisdom to know how to enjoy him during the midst of the trial. I believe that this divine disposition of the believer in the midst of of trials, this joy in Christ, is not some sort of an emotional feeling of happiness, but rather it's a supernatural joy that overcomes darkness, depression, and discouragement, because that's what trials bring to us. He's not referring to some sort of momentary sense of glee and, and gladness, but he's referring to a supernatural joy that overcomes trials, tribulations, and tragedies. And so it is, I believe, as the Apostle writes to us this morning, to die is gain. What he's saying is that we must have a mindset that God will give us faith in the face of death. A faith that says, this world is not my home. A faith that believes the words of Jesus who said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Do you believe that? We have to realize that God needs to work in our hearts to give us faith that stares down the last enemy. Death in the eye. A faith that is able to say, as for me, I know my Redeemer lives. And even after my skin is destroyed, I shall see God. Now the fact is, is modern people tend to avoid thinking or even talking about death unless it's absolutely necessary. I, I know it's weird, but I do thank God that I was raised in a family where we went to funerals. 
Um, it was just what you did. But I meet people all the time that are 20, 30 years old and never been to a funeral. Never been to a memorial service. I think this really disables us from being able to think through life knowing that death is going to come. And modern people just don't want to talk about it. There is a prominent literary figure, William Scargan, in the mid-20th century, and he was within just days of his own death in 1981 from cancer. And because he was a literary giant, he wrote a statement that was uh, issued to the Associated Press, and he says these words. Everyone has, has, to, uh, has got to die, but I have always believed an exception would be made in my case. <laughs> now what? And I think that that really sets the mindset of most modern thinkers today. Is, you know, they know that everybody has to die. But when it comes to themselves, they think that there's some sort of ex exemption. It's not going to happen to me. Now, of course, when we're young, we feel like we're going to live forever. As we get older, we start thinking about it a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. But the fact is, you know, it's, is it really going to happen? And the answer is, yeah, it's going to happen unless, unless the Lord tarries, unless the Lord comes, each one of us are going to die. I, you know, Barbara really wanted me to be positive today, and I'm really trying, all right? <laughs> There's a story told about a young man that had the opportunity of meeting the prime minister in England, whose name was Gladstone. This was in the 1800s, and this young man was so excited to, to meet this dignitary, and he says, Mr. Gladstone, I appreciate it if you just give me a few minutes. I'd like to lay before you the plans for my life. And the young man proceeded and says, I, I'd like to, to study law. Yes, said Mr. Gladstone, and, and then what? Well, then, sir, I would like to gain entrance into the bar of England. Yes, young man, and then what? Well, then, sir, I'd like my place in Parliament in the House of Lords. Yes, young man, then what? Then I would hope to do great things for Britain. Yes, young man, then what? Well, sir, I hope to retire and to take life easy. Yes, young man, but then what? Well, I suppose I'll die. And then what, said Mr. Gladstone. The young man responds and says, well, I never really have thought much about it after that. Mr. Gladstone says, young man, you are a fool. You need to go home and think through life again. The point is, is that death is a part of life, and the sooner that we respect it, things will go better for us. We can plan out our whole life, and people do it all the time. People are planning their careers, their financial stability, their future retirement, and not giving much thought at all about death.
Now, unlike this young man with Mr. Gladstone, many great Christians of the past have thought a lot about death. Martin Luther said this, Even in the best of health, we should have death always before our eyes, so that we will not accept to remain on this earth forever, but will have one foot in the air, so to speak. Jonathan Edwards, the great American revivalist preacher, as a young man, he wrote out seven uh, uh, resolutions, and he read these resolutions weekly so that he would keep his life on focus. This is number nine in the 70. Quote, resolve to think much on all occasions of my dying and of the common circumstances which attends death. The Puritan preacher Richard Baxter, who lived with a chronic physical illness, said, I preach as though I will never preach again. I preach as a dying man to dying men. I think that's a good way to look at it. But it's sad to say, people today, they just don't think about death until they themselves experience uh, a bad diagnosis or they have the loss of a friend or a loved one. Again, they don't want to talk about it. I think that we do live in a culture where there's this denial of death. But the Bible makes it clear, everyone must die, and then comes the judgment. There's no exceptions, and there's no exemptions. This is the reason why I really use memorial services and funeral services as an opportunity to call people to consider their own mortality. And I, I guess that's what I'm doing for you all today. Aren't you happy you're here? Um, Several months ago, Anne asked me to um, come and sit down and talk to her husband, uh, Bob. I'll get, I'll get control of it, trust me, all right? Um, Bob's son is here today and his family. Um, so um, Bob was suffering from uh, cancer. Uh, he was going to die. Um, so for several months, I was able to meet with Bob every other week or so. Uh, when I first met with Bob, we had a nice chat, and, and uh, he says, uh, Well, preacher, uh, I just want you to know I'm... I'm I'm an agnostic and maybe even an atheist. And I said, well, if you're an agnostic, that's okay with me because at least you're still asking questions. Um, would it be all right if I just keep on coming over every once in a while and, and we can talk about scripture and stuff like that and get to know each other a little bit better? And he says, sure, you're welcome to come anytime you like. So I'd go over and we'd talk and we had the opportunity to meet together and I would share God's word. 
And uh, each week, or every time we got together, I, I, I just saw God softening his heart. You know, we talked about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We, we talked about Romans 10, where the apostle tells us that if we believe in our heart and confess in our, our mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, we will be saved. We talked about other scriptures. We talked about what happens when a person dies, what the Bible says that happens when a person dies for the believer and for the unbeliever. I'm sharing this with you because you have opportunities to meet with people, loved ones. And let me just tell you that most people, when you meet with them and they're in this, in this situation, they'll tell you that they don't want to talk about death. But the fact is, they want to. They want to. And you have the opportunity to share with them the greatest news of all. That to die is gain. Well, after time went on, we were meeting one time and, and Bob says to me, um, you know, Pastor, I, I grew up reciting the Apostles' Creed. And I said, oh, okay, that's, that's cool. We recite the Apostles' Creed. We're going to recite it a little bit later in this service. And um, I said, can you, can you recite it now? Yep, I have it memorized. And I said, well, of course, the question is, do you believe it? You know what? I do. I believe it. God had captured his heart to make this transition from questioning about death to having confidence in death. And that's what God wants to do in your heart and in my heart. God doesn't want you to be an agnostic when it comes to death. He wants you to have confidence about what happens when you die. The Holy Spirit, I believe, wants to work in your heart so that you and I can say to die is gain. Our family members might not understand it. People might think we're a little weird. But the fact is, that is what we need to do. It wasn't long until Bob uh, started praying with Ann and discussing scripture. And as time went on, he got very weak. And one morning at the end of May, um, Bob and Ann were praying and he passed. Can you just famine what it, what it would be like to be talking to God and then seeing him face to face? Talking to him through prayer, but now you're talking to him face to face. To die is gain. I guess the way we live our, live our lives determines if dying is truly gain. The apostle says, as to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
And I think the reason why the apostle could say, for me to die is gain, is because he was living for Christ. That's the only confidence that we have in death, is Christ. I think if we really do use the will illustration and ask Christ to truly be the center of our lives and really allow every facet of our lives to really bring glory to him and stuff like this, then the, the fact is, is to use a little pun, we'll, we'll roll right into heaven. The, the apostle writes, right after he, he, he writes this marvelous verse, well, let me just read the whole thing. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor to me. But I do not know which to choose. But I am hard pressed in both directions, having desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain, excuse me, on in the flesh is necessary for your sake. See, the apostle didn't look at death as an escape from this difficult situation of imprisonment and possible execution, but rather he had a desire that with all boldness that he would exalt Christ in his body, whether by life or by death. As a matter of fact, right before Paul writes verse 21, he writes these words, that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by, he- by death. I, I believe that this is the secret to the pursuit of happiness. The secret to the pursuit of happiness is to have with all boldness that Christ, even now, as always, will be exalted in our bodies, whether in life or in death. That is really the pursuit of happiness, is to pursue Christ in all things. The Christian's motive is always to glorify God. Remember the apostle teaches, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or if you're on your dying bed, do it all to the glory of God. I think what Paul is saying is that if God was going to call him home, that he knew he would be with Christ. And notice he says, and that would be very much better. But if that didn't happen, Paul wanted to exalt Christ in life and by death. See, Paul knew that to depart from this life, he would be with the Lord. The Bible teaches That we are made up as humans with body and soul. Our composition is body and soul. And at the point of death, our body returns to the ground one way or another. But our soul, the soul of the believer, goes and be with the Lord. We are to be of good courage, the Bible teaches. Because to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And we see that this 
paradise is our purposed and promised destination. It should be on your bucket list. Where do you want to go? Heaven. I want to go to be in paradise with my Lord. The Bible tells us that this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. And when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal would have put on immortality, then will come about the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. See, brothers and sisters, now we look through a mirror dimly, but on that, on that day, appointed for you, like it was for Bob, you will see him face to face. But, we must ask God to work faith in our heart to face death. The Bible tells us that death is the last enemy. Death will be the thing, the, the, the thing that will want to snatch you and take you away from Christ. It's the last enemy. It's the last temptation. It's the, it's the last thing. And it's on a positive note. It is the last glorious opportunity to express our faith in Christ. Just like we walk by faith in this life, we must face death with faith. Faith believing that it's much better to be with Christ. And let me just say this. The greatest gift you can give your children and the greatest gift you can give your family is for them to know for sure what happened to you when you died. Because leaving them bewildered and unsure haunts them. Haunts them. So you need to have faith and you need to express your faith and say, listen, I know. I don't want to die today. But I know when I face death, that God has worked faith in my heart so I can stare that enemy down and express my faith in Christ. There are many stories of Christian martyrs that you can read who really did believe that dying was pain. And I'll just share one of those stories with you this morning. There was a pastor in England during the reign of Bloody Mary. That wasn't a good thing for him. If you know anything about Bloody Mary, uh, just a tremendous executioner and persecutor of, of Bible preaching. And John, Pastor John, while he was in prison waiting for his execution, was never allowed to see his family. On his way to his execution, his wife and ten children were standing in the crowd and he hardly had the opportunity to stop and to say goodbye to them. It's recorded that as he marched to the stake to be executed that he calmly repeated Psalms 51. 
the French ambassador was there and witnessed the execution, and he wrote this about Pastor Rogers. As he was walking to his death, it seemed as if he was walking to his wedding. When he was walking to his death, it seemed as if he was walking to his wedding. I've had the privilege of officiating hundreds of weddings, and I haven't seen a sad yet. The groom is all amped up and ready to go and strutting down, and, and then the bridal party comes up. Everybody looks so beautiful. And then after, ladies and gentlemen, like to present to you, Mr. and Mrs., you may kiss the bride. And Everybody's shouting and clapping. They walk out and they're dancing. They would go to a reception. It was, it's, it's, it's always fun. I, haven't, I, haven't, I can't remember the last time I went to a bad wedding. I, I've never seen the groom or the bride or any of the wedding party walk down the aisle kind of like, Mom, I guess I've got to do this. And it seems, it's really kind of cool that this French ambassador uses that as the analogy. As he is walking to his execution, it seemed as though he was walking to his wedding. But the fact is, is that's the way it is. Because the Bible tells us that we are the bride of Christ. And at our death, we'll be united with our groom, our Lord Jesus Christ. And there we will be with him forever and ever. Amen. The Bible tells us that on that day we'll hear something like a voice of multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty pails of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. But then it goes on to say that on that day we will hear this. Rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the married supper of the Lamb. That's basically like the glorious reception party. The married supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. (laughs) And that's what I'm trying to do today, is encourage you as the bride of Christ to make yourself ready. Ready for that wedding day. Waiting for that great married supper of the Lamb, that great and glorious reception. What I'm trying to do is challenge you to seek God for the faith. That when you are facing death, it'll be like you walking into your wedding. Because you, as his bride, have made yourself ready. Brothers and sisters, the apostle tells us that if we hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. As a matter of fact, the verse in verse 21 of Philippians chapter 1, if Paul says, for me to live as Christ and stop there, it wouldn't be complete. Because the Christian life isn't just about living. The Christian life is about dying as well. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if I'm only living for Christ for this life only, I am of all people to be most pitied. Our hope is 
in Christ, not only in this life, but also for eternal life to come. As Jesus said to Martha in that great conversation that he had with her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will die, will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Death is just a transition into our glorious existence in Christ. But then Jesus asked the familiar question, do you believe this? And that's what I'm asking you today. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and life? Do you believe that you will live even if you die? Do you believe that actually those who believe in Christ never die? Has Christ worked faith in your heart today where you have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord? Is God speaking to you today about surrendering your life to Christ? Is God speaking faith into you, saying, come to me, call out to me, ask me for forgiveness, and I will give it because of the gracious work of my son? Has God worked faith in your heart today where you can say, as for me, to live is Christ. Christ is the core of my life. Christ is the substance of every part of my life for me to live is Christ. If there's an area in your life that you haven't totally surrendered to Christ, then you need to do it, even today. Has God worked faith in your heart so you can say with spiritual, complete confidence, me, to die, is gain. If you can answer those three questions, yes, 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 then you're pursuing happiness. Because there's no happiness outside of those things. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask you now to work in our hearts. Lord, I come to you today and ask you to Draw us closer and closer to Christ. Jesus, I confess that you are the Son of God, that you died on the cross for my sins. Lord, I ask you to forgive me, come into my life, claim me as a child of God. And as your children, Lord, work faith in our heart so that we might glorify you in all things, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, that we do it all for the glory of God. Lord, we surrender each part of our life, every facet of our lives. And Lord, today we ask, Lord, for an extra dose of faith that you will work in our hearts so that we can say, I have confidence in the face of death that I will be with Christ forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.